And a lot of times if you're just out venturing the country out there, you end up three miles, four miles, five miles away from where you were tenting the night before. You're not going to want to turn around and backtrack that whole area. You're going to want to set up a new tent, sleep the night, and then get back up. And for sure, the tent to me in that situation, was it's incredibly beneficial because you can just quickly throw it up, get up in the morning in the dark, get it back down, and get back on your back and get going. No argument there. However, for you folks listening, Patrick moves around too much when he hunts. It's a hiking and hunting experience. Don't necessarily be like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't try and hunt the same spot two days in a row. Like, well, maybe you should. Are you calling him impatient? <laughs> I'm a butterfly, James. you got to let me move. <laughs> Patrick will just stomp through the woods and be like, nothing's here. <laughs> These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Gentlemen, thank you very much for that tour this morning we're in the headquarters of nemo equipment uh are we still in new hampshire i feel like we're in new hampshire it's, it feels like we're in a place where you can cross state lines really easily really and easy. not realize that you've done it yeah yeah you could you could just about throw a stone to maine yeah from here yeah yeah okay so we're a stone's throw from maine we're in new hampshire we're in nemo what is nemo who are you Nemo is a designer manufacturer of high-end um, outdoor gear. Okay. Who are you? I am Cam Brensinger. I'm the founder and CEO of Nemo. I'm Randy Gaetano, and I'm a content creative director here at Nemo. Been here three years. Not comparable to Cam's 18 years 18 of being. 18 and a half now. <laughs> yep. Yeah. This is Cam's baby. Yep. And we also have Patrick Hanley. Um, been out here at SIG headquarters this week in um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and we're on our way up to Maine to do some muzzleloader hunting. And you guys are going to hear more about that in another episode. Um, but we got this opportunity to come out and and tour this facility, and it, it's so cool because um, you know I, I've I've used your guys' stuff. And you know, to have that experience like in the mountains of Colorado and in a legitimately very trying environment and then come out and kind of see where the concepts were born and everything that you're doing to test them here. It's amazing. It's, it's really fun to have this opportunity, opportunity to go through everything. 
it seems very evident that innovation is important to you. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So, you know, just as you were, as you were just saying that James about almost kind of pulling back the curtain, right. And, and seeing where gear comes from. I, I had that experience when I was in school, I went to school for product design and, uh, and I interned at black diamond equipment, um, climbing equipment maker back around 2000. And I remember the first time I got shown how to make a runner, which is basically just a webbing loop that we use in, in lead climbing. And just thinking like, wait, humans make this? Like it's not made by magical elves somewhere, right? <laughs> you know, and just, and that was totally addicting to me. I mean, I, I've always loved making things. I've always loved outdoor adventure and, and the notion that you could design and make things that would extend people's capability or that they'd really count on or use to go to amazing places and do great adventures. Like I just, I had to do that. Yeah. That's uh that's interesting that you can take something as simple as that and you can really track it back to, you know, this, this giant organism, which, which is now, I think that there can be an issue with innovation today where people will create something that is not needed. It's a solution looking for a problem. Yeah. Uh, how do you keep from falling into that trap? Yeah. So back in that same time period when I was in school, um, so I, the first time around in college, I, I studied physics and studio art and really didn't know what I was going to do with my life. My only plan for after college was going up to Denali with some friends. And uh, when I came back from that, you know, I and realized I needed to pay bills and put a roof over my head um, and started thinking seriously about a career, I sketched out a really crappy business business plan basically and uh just to, to to start a gear company and kind of bootstrap it you know out of climbing area parking lots kind of thing and uh i showed it to my dad one day who said you know spared telling me what a lousy plan it was basically and said you should check out industrial design and uh and when i saw what industrial or product design was it was like manifest destiny like that's that's what i got to do with my life so I go back to school. I, you know, I had no design background, so I basically had to go back and redo undergrad. Um, and I did that at, at Rhode Island School of Design. And when I was there and kind of learning industrial design, at some point I remember kind of realizing what I'm being taught to do right now is mass-produce stuff. You know, like product design most of the time means, you know, designing things for mass production. And I had, you know, I was 20-something years old. Um, I had some sensibility about taking care of the planet. And, and I had pretty mixed feelings about that. Um, and so right from the outset, before I even incorporated the business, I thought, if I'm, gonna, if I'm going to, quote, mass produce things, everything we bring to market has to be worth, worthy. You know, it has to be justified. And, uh, and so a golden rule of Nemo has always been, we will not bring anything to market that's the same as what's out there. Everything we bring to market has to improve the experience of adventure. And, you know, one of the things that we looked at was, was a chair. And what you brought up is that people have been sitting down on things for quite a long time. So if you're going to take on a project like that, like how can I change the chair? Yeah. Like, holy crap, that's a huge problem. Huge thing. A lot of people yeah. have thought about this. A lot of people have experienced chairs in all forms. And, uh, you know, that, that takes a boldness to even, even think about taking it on. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, and, you know, is it boldness or is it naivete? I don't know. But, yeah, we, we said back in 2012, we want to make a cool chair. And, uh, and like you said, you know, we, you know, we said, well, like everything else we do, it's going to have to be substantially different. It's going to have to really improve the experience. So the first thing we did was a little research project, um, kind of looking back over the history of chairs. I remember we had a, we'd hired a new designer to help with the project, um, and that was his first project, actually, was to kind of put together a slide deck on the history of the chair. And looking back to this, like, Egyptian stuff, <laughs> you know, that was, it was pretty innovative. And, um, and realizing, wow, you know, humankind's been making chairs for a long time. And when I was in design school, you know, I, I learned, too, that making a chair is a favorite problem of designers. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's something humans have thought about a lot. So it was daunting. I mean, we were, at the beginning, it was like, how the hell are we going to do anything different there? And uh, at the time, hammocks were really hot. Um, different products go ahead and go through cycles in our market, and hammocks were like on a major upswing. And so I think hammocks were in our subconscious. And, and so we had this idea to basically make like a, almost like a, a hammock in a tiny frame the size of a chair, you know, so make, make a swinging chair. And, and the notion was to make the experience a little more dynamic, like a little more fun. Like as you're sitting, you can move and, uh, which felt natural. Like I think a lot of people move a little bit when they're, when they're sitting. So we, we had that thought in 2012, we did the first drawings in 2013 and it took us until 2018 to, to bring that to market. It was a long process. That's cool. It's, it's, it's just an example really more than anything else. Um, but it, it is, it's interesting to, to think about problems like that stuff that people take for, for granted who are not in design, um, like myself. So I find it very interesting. Well, that was, I'll say too, James, I mean, that was, that was humbling almost at every step along the way because, <laughs> you know, we, we started out making tents, then we make sleeping pads, then we make sleeping bags. You know, once we learned tents, a lot of those skills were transferable, mm -hmm. but the chair was a new realm. I mean, it was like, you know, a new supply chain, a new set of engineering problems. We had to get uh, finite element analysis for our CAD modeling so we could, you know, basically ap apply strain to or stress rather to the chair frame and, and observe how the materials would strain and predict to some degree, you know, the, the, the challenges that that frame would undergo. So we had to get new tools. We had to set up the lab a certain way. We had to build test equipment. And, uh, and it turns out supporting a hammock, there's a lot of forces in supporting a hammock and, and building something strong enough to support a hammock in the form factor of a chair, um, was strenuous, um, and it's, you know, the cool thing about that was it sort of showed us after that point, you know, we were 12 years into the business, 10 years in the business. And, uh, and it showed us, it sort of emboldened us to kind of be willing to continue to break out of, um, you know, our, our experience and try new things, you know, tackle new product categories. And I love the testing of, of equipment because that's a lot of what I do and I do it because I enjoy it. So seeing the machine that you guys built to, you know, see how much these chairs could take before they, they collapsed is awesome. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people have probably sat around uh, a campfire at some point and either sat down into a chair that 
um, died at that point or tried to get up out of it and killed it in that, in that means. Um, so, you know, the first thing that I asked when I see all this equipment that's obviously designed for, for killing this thing and seeing how much it takes to kill it, it's like, how much does it take to kill it? Yep. And uh, your answer was great because it wasn't something that I'd considered. So you have, you know, a, a static load, like you gently place a, you know, sober man into this chair um, <laughs> who's still in control of his facilities. And, uh, and then five hours later, you know, after t- 27 bush lattes, down he goes with full force of gravity. Um, yeah, that chair's going to have to be a little bit stronger at that point. So when you think about load radians, you can't just be like, oh, it can hold a 300-pound you know, object. It's, it's different than that. It's more complicated. Yeah. Can it hold the 300-pound drunk object? Yeah. <laughs> different story. Yeah. In uh, 24 inches of free fall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, t- it turns out that that 24 inches produces a, a huge force. Like, I, I actually, we, we, uh, you know, we've, we've, got a, we've got a super nerd on our team, a Harvard PhD engineer. And I, I remember he and I were working through this in the beginning. Like, how do we where are we going to set the load limit and what kind of safety factors are going to be? So like, if you say, you know, the chair's going to hold 300 pounds, does it literally just hold like you put 301 pounds in and it breaks? No. I mean, you got to have some margin for error there. And, uh, and so I, you know, he's given me all this mathematical answer to it. And basically I said, look, I just, what I need you to do is clear off this, this, piece of testing equipment, put a chair on it. And I want to fall into it. Like I, I want to know, like I want a picture in my mind of, I weigh 225 pounds. If I stumble into this thing, like I want to know how much force that is. And then let's put a safety factor on that. Cause I'm not the biggest guy who's going to sit in that thing. And my dynamic load at 225 pounds was twice my weight. Right. You know, so it's, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So from, from a hunter's perspective, if you're trying to buy a tent or a shelter, like you're not cool if you're not calling it a shelter these days, so we'll call it a shelter. <laughs> um, if you're buying a shelter from the storm and, uh, and you're looking at your pad and your bag, your sleeping bag and your pillow and you know some of, some of this furniture and other amenities that you have in camp, it can be really, really overwhelming if you're looking at a catalog or if you're looking at a website. Honestly, a lot of these tents look the same. Yep. To look at them in a picture and like that's got to be a really difficult struggle for you with in content, right? It's Absolutely. like to take a picture of this stuff and be like, "Look, it's different." When it sure enough is different, but how do you prove it in a photo? I mean, I was just thinking about the chair as Cam was talking about it, like reinventing the sitting experience. And so I have to tell that story to people. Um, how do you get them to watch a video long enough to see that this chair actually swings and it's a completely different experience? So, Knowing that people have a three-second attention span. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, same with tents. Yeah, it's, I'd say with tents, I mean, first of all, James, I, I'm going to cut you off, but I, I actually would say that people should want a tent and not a shelter. Because for us... <laughs> What's the difference? Well, yeah, so for us <laughs> in the field... You know, we would say a shelter doesn't have a, it's not an enclosure. A tent is an enclosure. Okay. You know, so, and I, I I get it, you know, why say 10 years ago, people would, now if bugs are not an issue or rain is not an issue or blowing snow is not an issue, whatever, maybe you don't need walls or even a floor, but 
you know, people would endure a lot more 10 years ago and be willing to suffer because carrying, say, just a tarp and a pad and a bag was substantially lighter than the lightest tents at the time. Now our, our lightest backcountry tents are so light, there is no reason to not carry a, quote, tent and, and keep the elements out. You know, and as, as far as I'm concerned, there's no reason to deliberately suffer because what you're trading off is getting rest, you know, and like being rested the next day can, can be the difference between being successful or having a good day or not. So I'd say carry a tent and the lightest tents now, I mean, eat two spoonfuls less for breakfast. And that's the difference between that and taking the, the walls and the floor away. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're right. just so light. I mean, you might as well carry a tent. Okay. What about stoves? I mean, Western hunters, we, we'd love to have a fire in there. Wood stove. It's cold. <laughs> um, you know, so I've, I've really been mostly floorless the last few years, and, um, and that's kind of the go-to for, for a lot of people out there. But will um, you take that into the backcountry? Will you, will you pack that five, eight miles in? Yeah, if, if, if that's the job, for sure. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, if, if it's a cold hunt. You know, if we're going to be in, in single digits, teens, 20s, you, you talk about that experience of, like, being able to, um, to get rest. One of the big struggles for me when I'm on a backcountry trip and it's cold is getting up on time in the morning. So yep. if I have to get up an hour and a half before it's light, it is as cold as it's going to be. Yep. Um, so what I tend to like to do is to build a fire the night before. I'll go to sleep cold. I'll wake up, light my fire, and then I can, you know, wake up in a, in a, warm, in a warm shelter and, and get dressed. But there is some problems with that. Like yep. you've, you've got a lot of extra gear that you're bringing with you and a lot of extra weight, and it's dirty, um, and it's a little bit dangerous. Like all this other equipment that we can carry, it melts. Um, so everything that we have can fail when it hits that, that hot stove. Um, there's carbon monoxide issue. Yeah. Like there, there's a lot of give and take with this stuff. So if I'm going to forsake that and go to an enclosed tent, how am I going to stay warm in that situation? Because people do a lot in, yeah. in way colder yeah. conditions than I hunt in. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, I would say, look, it's all, all of these things compromise something, right? And there's no perfect solution. And I've spent over 40 nights in a well tent this year since COVID started. Um, and the cold ones, we're running a wood stove, you know, and that's great camping living. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm, I love that. But in a backcountry situation, I guess because my roots are on the mountaineering side where whether you could do that or not, like we just never even thought of bringing a wood stove, you know, like, you mm -hmm. know, we didn't bring a wood stove to Denali. Um, the way we address that there is, is the tents in the first place are pretty small, you know? So when you wake up in the morning, the second you open that sleeping bag, you're actually warming that air volume pretty fast. And, you know, during the night you're in a super warm, I mean, I guess the, the sort of three zones to consider would be, you know, when you're hanging out in the tent in the evening, you know, and you're passing a little time in the evening and you're trying to dry your stuff off maybe. And, you know, and you're, you know, having a conversation with your buddy or whatever. And, and then the sleeping part and then the morning when you're getting geared up. Um, 
as far as the the kind of in the evening part um you know it's if you got one or two people in a small tent like that and you're kind of down to your long underwear you're warming that little like our little tenshi or chigori mountaineering tents you they're, they're small, or any mountaineering tent in that category they're small enough you're going to warm that up then you get into your minus 20 minus 40 sleeping bag and you're trapping all that heat inside so the tent is going to be ambient air temperature and there's a little bit of a mythology that different tents you know will warm different in the middle of the night like your heat is trapped by that bag it's in that bag right. i don't care what the tent is made out of it's going to be ambient air temperature in the morning when you wake up it's back to like I, first of all i put my from mountaineering days i put all my gear all my clothes in my bag with me which kind of sucks honestly for the first hour but you do this sort of bellowing technique where you know you open up the bag a little bit you bellow your bags, your, your bag, and you'll boil that moisture off. And mm -hmm. so by morning, I'm waking up, all my gear is warm, it's all dry. I'll put as much of it on as I can while I'm still in the bag. And then the second I crack my bag open, you know, five minutes later, it's, it's reasonable. Not only am I already partly dressed, but it's reasonably warm in the tent. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that is a really interesting thing. And honestly, the same thing with wall tents. Like you can have a 12-ounce a canvas wall tent with a you know 12 ounce tarp over the top of it and you can have a stove that's glowing like a cherry and uh i always say that the tent is the same temperature as a stove and as soon as that fire goes out it gets cold i yeah. mean it's just it's not there's not an r value in in campus there just no, no. there just really isn't that's not the way it works well and yeah so that's a perfect perfect point and and so if i kind of equate the two and i'm thinking again about all these nights i mean i just this last weekend i spent a couple nights uh, in our wall tent with a wood stove and you fire up the wood stove when you're hanging out in the evening it burns down in the middle of the night and it turns to ambient temperature and then you crack it back you know you get it back going in the morning again in that the difference is that like our wall tent is 12 by 17 there's no you know and we got my two kids and my wife and i there that's not enough body heat to warm that up right you know what I mean? So we get up in the morning. It's not going to be a warm tent unless that wood stove is going. But if we're in a two-man mountaineering tent and my wife and I sit up in long underwear, in minutes, it'll be warm. Yeah. We found that in Alaska, too. Me and Daniel spent a lot of time in the endurance out there. And in the morning time, you exactly what he said. Like, you'd get up in the morning and it would feel that chill and you could kind of feel it for a little bit. As soon as you wake up and you start moving around... And we'd start making breakfast and everything. It would it would immediately warm the inside of the tent up. Yeah. It was interesting though, and actually, I, I think everybody would find interest in this. And you're the guy I need to ask about it. And James will want to know the answer to this too. So when they, I don't know if you guys have like a standard as far as tent sizing go, but can you explain to us like when you say two person tent? So like the endurance is a two person tent, and I call it my my little hotel because I have so much room in there when mm -hmm. I go by myself that I will carry that weight just because I like having the extra space. And if somebody else needs to crash with me, they can jump in there. Yeah. How, is there actually a standard when they determine based on the amount of seasons a tent is worthy for how big a two person is in a four season as compared to how big it is in a, in a two season tent? It's, it's not, it's not a protocol or a formal testing standard, but the industry standard is to use our sleeping pads. Like over the years, our pad sizes have become standardized across brands. So we basically all make 20 inch, 25 inch, and 30 inch pads. So we say, you know, the, what 
we, we use the 20 inch pad 20 by 72 is like, that's the footprint of a person. Mm -hmm. And then from, from there, it's up to us. So, you know, in a, in a mountaineering tent, typically we'll give you more room because we recognize that, um, you're going to have a lot more gear. So that's why it feels more palace-like because there's, there's room in there knowing that you got a lot of extra clothing with you and stuff. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. And the same concept applies to bags that he, Cam is talking about for tents where, um, you know, a slimmer bag is going to be more thermally efficient because you're not warming as much air up. Sure. Yeah, it's a great, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up, Randy, because that, that, comes with the same kind of compromise right it's like the mummy bag it's going to keep you warm you're going to warm it up right away you're going to keep it warm with fewer calories during the night but you're also not going to spread out in a running position mm -hmm. so the wall tent is like that like you can stand up in the wall tent you can walk around you can hang up your gear to dry you can have a wood stove you know but but the trade-off is you need a lot of heat to warm that thing up and a, at a little mountaineering tent your own body heat can the other thing you brought up, James, that I've noticed when I go out west is, uh, as far as the having a like a teepee stove style, is that's that's something that I've, I see a lot of people use when they have a stationary area that they're hunting from. Um, a lot of the times, like when me and born and raised when we were in Colorado, a lot of days you were doing camp on your back. You'd wake up in the morning, you're going to pack up, put everything back in your pack, and you're going to walk with camp on your back all day and then pick a spot that night. And uh, I, that's where I saw the benefit to the tent, without a doubt, back there. Is that we, we never stayed in the, in some of those days, we never stayed in the same spot two times. And a lot of times, if you're just out venturing the country out there, you end up three miles, four miles, five miles away from where you were tenting the night before. You're not going to want to turn around and backtrack that whole area. You're going to want to set up a new tent, sleep the night, and then get back up. And for sure, the tent to me in that situation, was it's incredibly beneficial because you can just quickly throw it up get up in the morning in the dark, get it back down and get back on your back and get going. No argument there. However, for you folks listening, Patrick moves around too much when he hunts. It's a hiking and hunting experience. Don't necessarily be like, oh yeah, I shouldn't try and hunt the same spot two days in a row. Like, well, maybe you should. Are you calling him in impatient? <laughs> I'm a butterfly, James. You gotta let me move. <laughs> Patrick will just stomp through the woods and be like, "Nothing's here." <laughs> James uses these binocular things and all this weird stuff. And you like to see it firsthand? Yeah, you just gotta keep going. <laughs> Eventually, you know, he just finds this elk with its tongue hanging out. It's like, shoot me! <laughs> I'm tired. Yeah, it's tired of running from you. <laughs> And then he, you know, sets up his tent and is happily right there next to his dead elk. So. <laughs> um, temperature ratings on sleeping bags. Uh, I have not quite so humorously joked that I feel like that the temperature rating on a bag is a temperature at which you die. <laughs> How do we actually come up with that number? Because if you're in a 20-degree bag on a 20-degree night, you're probably not super happy. Yeah. Yeah, so there's actually, with the, with, with the current bag standard, um, they're, they're tested with a heated mannequin. So, so that there's, a, there's a formal protocol um, for how the bag is tested in a lab. And, and they, they come out with three ratings, a, a T-comfort, a T-limit, and a T-extreme. And basically, the, the temperature comfort is the, 
the the temperature rating at which the average person, male, female, whatever your kind of physiology is, you're going to be good to go. You're going to be comfortable. T limit is the temperature at which a average female physiology will be comfortable. And T extreme is beyond that, anyone's going to die. Yep. <laughs> like, like that's, that's sort of what you, you describe. So, so which number are you using? So his, so, so typically we use, we, for women's bags and we're starting to move away from genders for bags mm -hmm. because there's really not a lot of good reason for that. You know, you've got, people of different physiologies despite genders, sure. you know, and, and people of different heights despite genders. But, but typically in the industry, women's bags are warmer. They're about 15 degrees on average warmer than hmm. a men's bag. Um, I, maybe I need to look into those. <laughs> well, the other thing is it, it, it's up to, you know, so everyone, everyone who's publishing a temperature should be following the standard, but, but, it's also up to the brand's discretion kind of where they draw the line. Like if the test result comes back and says, you know, this bag is, is warm to 29 degrees. Do you call that a 29 degree bag? Do you call that a 30 degree bag? Do you call that a 32 degree bag? Do you call that a 42, a 40 degree bag? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And we, we learned in our early history with bags, um, to just sandbag them. You're better off to, to have a happy customer. Right. You know I mean? We'd thread the needle. Like if we got a, you know, a, a 30 degree test, that might be a freezing bag, a, you know, a 32 degree bag, we call it. Now we give a, a few degrees, you know I mean? And the trade-off is you give up, you know, your bag's going to be a little bit heavier when it comes to spec comparison and we give up a little margin, but because physiology varies. Sure. Right. And you know, what works for you may be different than me or the next guy. And uh, so we give a little bit of margin there and, and most good bag brands will do that. Yeah. Okay. So which number do you use? It depends um, whether it's men's or women. And like I said, we're, we're actually kind of moving away from doing that and, and actually just publishing, you know, disclosing like what the, the, the comfort level is You're, okay. Instead of calling it a women's bag and it just is 15 degrees warmer. Like, you know, here's the spread of kind of where that lay, and then you pick. Gotcha. That's, that's the direction. Choose your own adventure. Yeah. Are you comfort? Are you limit or are you extreme? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, and then you kind of know, well, I'm, like I'm, I I'm comfort. Just so you know, if I call you and be like, <laughs> what bag do I need? Like, yeah. Comfort. Well, and it's funny. Like my wife and I, my wife and I are exactly that. So she's, she's cold when it's less than 80 degrees out. Right. Until she's sound asleep. And then something switches in her brain and her physiology like turns on and she's, she goes to a million degrees and she throws all the covers off. And in the middle of the night, I'm exactly the opposite. My <laughs> physiology like goes into dor you know, into torpor. Like I'm, I'm like a hibernating bear <laughs> and, uh, and I need every cover on the bed. So it just, sure. it depends, you know, everybody's different that way. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a good relationship worked out there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> does the uh, does the exterior materials of the bag uh, have an impact, or is it merely just the fill? In other words, can you create a material internally and externally that retains heat better, that raises that temperature rating, or are you guys relying on the fill mostly? It's really air that produces insulation. You know, so what you really want for the most part is loft. 
you know, now it depends a lot on the nature of the insulation. I mean, the, the down feather is still unmatched by any human technology in terms of, like, if you look at that thing under a microscope, it's like a little fractal, you know, I mean, it just gets like these little tiny fibers, you know, and then you look the next level and there's more little tiny fibers. And then, I mean, it's just this crazy little structure. All holding air. Yeah. It just traps a lot of ambient air around it. Um, and, and especially, you know, fill power for bags is, is basically the amount of air volume that that little downy feather will fill. So the higher the fill power, the more voluminous, the more air that little feather occupies. So especially with, you know, call it a 700 and above fill power down. It's just, there's nothing quite that good um, at being insulating. What it's doing, again, is just sort of locking air molecules around it. Um, and that's the best insulator. So f the fabric contributes something, but very little. Okay. Now, in our sleeping pads, we use a reflective film that bounces radiant heat back. And that counts. On, that still counts on some airspace in front of it. It's not like if you, if you put that space blankety mylar film right against your body, it's actually a conductor. But if you put it at a little bit of a distance away, it'll bounce radiant heat back. Um, so it is possible to use thin films to do some insulating. But in a bag, um, it's not really practical to do that because one of the other considerations is you want it to breathe a lot, especially if it's a down bag. But you don't want to be trans, uh, tra sorry, trapping a whole lot of moisture inside that system. And sort of back to what we were talking about before, you know, especially in the case of if you're backcountry hunting and you're in a shoulder season and you're very likely wet, it's you know very likely a wet environment one way or another. Um, if you're bringing that the, that wet clothes into your bag to dry it off in the night, the last thing you want to do is have that be a big vapor barrier. You know, I mean, you want to you want to boil that moisture out of the bag during the night and wake up you know with everything nice and dry. Um, so, in addition to trying to make air volume, we're also trying to make sleeping bags breathable. Okay. I want to talk about sleeping pads. I feel like that's something that, that folks gloss over. You know, they'll spend $350, $400 on a sleeping bag, and then they're like, they get a pad as an afterthought. But to me, it's a very important part of the equation. Yeah, so pads, it's, it's a really good point. Um, and actually, you know, I think, I think there are a lot of unhappy, there, 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 there are a good number of unhappy sleepers out there who think that their bag is to blame. And the reality is it's their pad because when you're, you know, I think the best way to think about kind of that sleep system is sort of an envelope. And when you lay on the, on the sleeping bag, you're crushing all the air out of it. And we were just saying like air is really the insulator. So the, the part of the bag that you're laying on is not doing you a whole lot of good. You know, so that so if you think of it as sort of the 360 envelope around you, that part that's crushed down in your bag, it's useless. It needs the pad, and furthermore, the pad had better be just as insulating as the rest of that envelope. You know, so you got to have a pad that matches your bag, or maybe even more so because um, you're in contact Conduction, with the ground, the ground. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, truly. I mean, uh, you know, especially again in in a typical fall hunting environment, that ground's probably pretty cold. You know, for sure. And if you're in a small tent and you've limited convection, you know, you don't have a lot of wind passing through. You don't have a lot of convective cooling. You're right. The ground may be in the even bigger heat sink, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, so with pads, it's a bit, it's sort of the same, but different strategy for how to create insulation. 
But there have been some brands like Exped years ago put down into pads, which was a brilliant uh, innovation at the time and kind of unlocked, you know, after years of the Thermarest self-inflating pad being really the only option for us um, in the backcountry, Exped's down pads really unlocked, you know, a new era of innovation. Um, and when we came into the into the space, the race was really, how do you make those higher R values, say a three or a four or five R, R value at the least possible weight and pack size. And, um, and we're able, the way we're able to do that is basically by making a honeycomb of cells inside um, and using reflective membranes, which we were talking about before. And also sometimes we use, um, we call it white fuzz, um, like a, a, uh, like a, a non-woven um, filament insulation, synthetic insulation inside. Um, but at the same time, you know, unlike the bag, you've got to not only be insulating, but you've got to create an air volume. You know, I mean, you have to, to make a comfortable thing to sleep on. Um, so it's, they look like nothing. I mean, we joke about it all the time here. It's like just this boring looking slab. Um, but it's, it's been t tricky development over the years, making a really great pad. And I don't think that that's, obviously with sleeping bags, there's not one bag for every occasion. There's not one pad for every occasion either. Um, if you're going to go on a river trip, you're going to want a different pad than if you're going to sure. go, you know, out on some freaking rock face somewhere. And that's <laughs> going to be different than if you're going on a hunting trip. Yep. Uh, if your pad is inflatable, folks, you need to bring the repair kit with you because inflatable means that it can also be unintentionally deflatable. doesn't matter who <laughs> makes it, and it can absolutely ruin um, your ability to sleep. And pretty much no matter what, if you're hunting, if you're camping, a third of your life you're going to spend sleeping. Yep. And that's why we're talking about this stuff. So well, James, you hit, on, you hit on a couple of great things there too. I mean... The thing about backcountry hunting, right, is is you're very likely not in a groomed gravel parking spot, you know. So, I mean, you might be out in thorns and rocks and twigs and, you know, there's a lot of stuff there to puncture. So, you know, what I usually do and what I'd recommend and kind of back from my mountaineering days is also carry a closed cell pad. You know, in any, in any real cold environment, you know, we bring both hmm. and we, we, for us, we have a, a, a Z folding, um, closed cell phone pad we call switchback. Um, I'll bring that with an air pad. And the idea is, you know, that switchback, um, closed cell phone pad is super robust. I mean, you know, it's, it's really resilient material. It's going to, it's going to protect you no matter what, but the air pad, so, so it's sort of there as your security layer, and then the air pad is there for your additional insulation and comfort. Right. You know, the air pad gives you the, the plushness, and the, and the switchback is your insurance policy. Yeah, I think that that's really smart. And those, the Z pads are, they're light. They're light. Um, they're inexpensive. Yeah, it's, 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 no, it's no big deal. Yeah. yeah. It's and and it makes a great you. seat, you know, when you're. Totally. You know, if you're spot and stocking or, you know, just hanging out, eating lunch or whatever it is, I mean, it's yeah. just handy having those along. It's got lots of uses. Yep. Yeah, I can make a split, improvised splint out of it or yep. any number of things. Yeah, totally. Um, you can keep stuff warm that needs to stay warm. You can keep stuff cold that needs to stay cold if you're talking about food. Um, if you're hot weather hunting, folks, and uh, you need to keep some meat cold, First thing in the morning when you get out of your sleeping bag, 
completely unzip it and let that heat out of it and then wrap your meat up in your sleeping bag mm. and it'll keep it cold all day. And then at night you, you know, you're going to smell like meat, but your meat's not going to waste. So there's, there's lots of ways to use this stuff. And whenever you are um, living off what you can carry, everything that you're carrying should have multiple uses. Yeah. And it's not that you're trying to, invent other ways to use this stuff is that you need things that can be used for multiple personal. Mul yeah. multiple things um since we've talked about bags a lot but let's talk a little bit about blankets when when and where why yeah so we you know we we make some blankets and mostly you know not for expeditionary kind of use but you know for travel and hanging out on the couch and you know it's it's one of the few items we make that's you know good for just holiday gifts and things like that. It's meant to be an accessible price point, but I'm, I'm heading up North, um, this weekend, uh, to deer hunt for a few days. And I actually contemplated, I have a, a first light pat. We have a partnership with first light and we, you know, we make some product um, with their pattern and it, I'm still on the fence about maybe bringing that stuff in that puffin blanket into my pack because I know I'm going to end up sitting, you know, for a couple hours supposed to be, kind of wet snow bordering you know sort of bordering on snow uh for the weekend could be pretty nice to be wrapped up in that blanket you know sitting by the tree for a few hours um so it's it's mostly a a leisure and fun product um but i keep one in my truck also i mean mm -hmm. you know here if uh, that's an important thing to keep in a, in right? a vehicle of any kind yeah i mean you slide off the road here in the in a, in a nor'easter and uh it could be quite a while before you're getting attention or if you come up on somebody else's hurt, like a, a blanket mm -hmm. is an absolutely life-saving tool. Um, and if somebody's looking at shock, you need to get them warm yeah. and, and keep them warm. So it's just a great thing to have with you. and doesn't take up a lot of space. You're going to use it for other stuff. Yeah. Keep it in your rig. Um, pillows. Backcountry pillows. Near and dear to my heart. You know, big guy. I've got wide shoulders. Like to sleep on my side. And, uh, you know... I'm not notoriously flexible, so my, my ear doesn't necessarily touch my shoulder, though it tries to at night, unless I have a freaking pillow. So this is an important thing to bring. You don't weigh that much. Talk to me about backcountry pillows. Yeah, such an underrated thing. And I think, I think sometimes people stop themselves from enjoying that luxury because of a little bit of pride. You know, yeah. like, oh, I don't need a pillow. But, man, I mean, for me, I mean, there's... Once you cover the basics, there's few things that impact an, a good night's sleep more for me than a pillow. And, uh, and I totally agree about just the height of a pillow. In fact, when we launched our Philo pillow many years ago, um, we did it with a, a grid of shock cord on the back of it, which we ended up taking off because nobody understood it. Um, but the purpose of it was so you could take an extra... Actually, I think we still have it in the luxury. There's one, uh, yeah. Yeah, we still make one with it. But the purpose was so you could take an extra piece of clothes and pull it through that lace of shock cord on the back to get that extra height. Yeah. Because like for me, if my I'm not as wide shoulder as you are, but if my if my head is not like in line with my spine, I'll wake up in a couple hours and my shoulder will hurt or like yeah. it's just, it's yeah. not comfortable. And uh, especially for side sleepers. Yeah. And I'm yeah I'm like religiously a running position sleeper. Uh, <laughs> same <laughs> so yeah i think it's a big deal and and it's you know pillow is another one of those things i mean it's it's sort of like the sleeping pad i mean you can look at it and think it's just there's nothing to it um but 
there's some constraints on making a good backcountry pillow. I mean, it's got to it's got to pack small. It's got to have enough height. It can't be like a football when your head is on it and your head's bobbleheading all night. Like it's got to be stable. It's got to be insulating. It's got to be soft to the touch. Um, and I think we've done a, a pretty good job of building those things in. That's one of those things that for a while, like before I used one, I always, you look at your backpack every time you go out and you're trying to think of like, what am I using? What am I not using? Everybody's always trying to get weighed out, especially if you're spending a lot of time out there. And when you realize how tiny these things are and how effective they are and the lack of weight, it's almost like you're just saying to yourself, why am I not doing this? And then once you do it once, you're done. It's it's like a lot of things that I've seen is, we have all these little luxuries that we take out with us. And sometimes you go, I don't need that. And then the first time that you do it and you experience it, you realize, boy, I should have been, I did this for years. I hiked for years and never took a trekking pole with me. I'd go out crazy carry. (laughs) Oh yeah. And it it was, do your knees still work? (laughs) Sometimes, but it was one of those things that I was always like, Oh, you know, I don't need those. I'm, I'm young. I don't need stuff like that. I don't have to carry the extra weight with me. And then the first time I used them, I said, I just lost 10 years of my life, not using trekking poles because I was just too stubborn to try it. And now I won't go anywhere without them. And that's the same thing I think of with the pillow is like a lot of people, like you said, will just say, that's not something I'm going to spare the weight. There is no weight. Yeah. There is no size in the pack. And when you first put your head on it, you're like, this is a decision I'm glad that I made. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Worth yeah. it. Yeah. I think back to um, my first long backpacking trip was uh, when I was a senior in high school. I convinced my high school to let me do a independent senior project to take a month um, in March and April to, uh, to hike sections of the AT here, like through the Mahusics and the Presidentials and the Franconia Ridge area and stuff. And uh, I remember I weighed my pack uh, at the beginning of that trip, and it was 86 pounds. Ooh. And now, like, that's laughable. Like, no, you know, like, you'd, you, you have to be insane to, there's no reason, there's no good reason why you would, you know, hit the trailhead with 86 pounds. I mean, unless maybe you're working for the AMC and you're, like, shuttling peanut butter up to the lodge <laughs> or whatever. But... I don't, you know, and to some degree, there's been this race over the years since, over the 30 years since then, to just get it lighter and lighter and lighter. And like, you know, sawing the handles off things and cutting the straps off things and like down to a level that to me is past rationality. Like, like I'm like, I can carry 30, 40 pounds and it's not gonna, the difference between 40 and 30 pounds is not going to change how far I get in the day. But it may completely change how much I enjoy my meal or how well I sleep at night or what, you know what I mean? It's like when you're down to a few ounces, particularly if it's a few ounces like a pillow that may truly transform how you sleep at night, like I say it's worth it. It's interesting you say that from a comfort perspective, like James brought up with the sleeping bag and the way that I am with a a tent is the world has become down to this technology is minimalist. Like this, if I can get my pack to 10 pounds and I can survive in the wilderness, I have the, I have the best setup ever where in fact, like the more I would try to lose some of that weight, the more you start to realize like, Hey, those extra couple pounds make me refreshed in the morning. They make me feel better. They just like, I, I, I've spent, I was telling Randy, I've carried that endurance tent pretty much everywhere since I started using it. And, uh, it's going to add three or four pounds to the Kodiak I was carrying last year. But as I used it more and more, I was like, that's a, it was a sacrifice. Yeah. It's like somebody saying I can like, I sleep really, really hot. So I bring a 30 degree bag almost everywhere. 
I very rarely use anything on that. But if you're James and you're saying you, you get cold in the night, that zero degree bag is going to weigh an extra, uh, carry an extra pound with you, but it's worth it because you're going to sleep. And yeah. I started, it, it took a long time to realize that, but I, I think you bring that up. It's, it is critically important that I think we all get our brains wrapped around technology is the smallest weight completely possible, yeah. but comfort is something that you, you're going to wish you had when you get out there and you yeah. realize that that extra two pounds would have made you happier. Yeah, I think it's like whether you're looking at one element, trying to win on one element of the whole experience or looking at the whole at the whole experience, you know? So like if it's just about who has the lightest pack, well, that's a no-brainer. But if it's like a holistic view of wanting it to be a great experience, wanting it to be a successful trip, like wanting to thrive on that adventure, you may do that math a little bit differently, mm -hmm. you know? One thing I will say is... If you're planning on killing something and packing it out, you need to be really light when you go in. If you're going to go hunt with llamas and there's no chance that you're going to kill anything, whatever, you know, bring the luxuries. But that difference between carrying a 100-pound pack and carrying a 110-pound pack is often the difference between injury or not. Yeah. Um, so if you can be light on the front end, if you're going to go in there with the right mindset and, and, and skill and attitude, um, yeah, being, being light up front is important. And, and that's why, you know, this, this lighter gear, it requires more technology. It requires a, um, you know, it's just, it's more expensive and it, it's not like you're getting ripped off. Like it costs more to make, it yeah. costs more to design. Like you have to put on your big brain if you're going to, take something and make it lighter and have it do the same job as something that's heavier. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great point. And, and I'm thinking of, I, I went out to Idaho to hunt with our friends at first lights last, last fall, right? Was, two, or two, two falls, falls ago. two falls ago already. And, uh, on their recommendation, I bought a EXO pack mm -hmm. with a carbon frame and, uh, great pack. Great pack. I mean, I, Excellent I've pack, loved yeah. that pack since it's really light. It's expensive, yeah. but that's a case where, you know, there's no good re I mean, if you can afford that pack, there's no reason to carry your weight in a steel frame versus that lightweight carbon, or you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think there's a reason to carry a pack with a frame in it versus a limp sack, you know yeah. what I mean? And so I think it's sort of like, like the pillow is sort of like that, like, and maybe some people don't, I mean, if you don't need a pillow to be comfortable, like I wish I could sleep on my back. I wish I could sleep on my back in a mummy position, right? Cause Wouldn't I, I be carry nice? this like super tight, yeah. like low volume bag and no pillow and I'd be good to go. But I, yeah. I can't sleep like that. No, I, I'm amazed at people who can in, the, in some of these little tiny bags. I just want to shoot myself and become <laughs> the mummy. It's like, let me out. I can't, you know. My shoulders are all like hot dogged in. It's terrible. It's a horrible experience. But some people do it. They must because lots of companies sell little tiny sleeping bags. Yeah. I don't know. I need to be, be able to wiggle around a little bit. Got to move. But uh, okay. So the last thing that I want to ask you about when we're talking about luxuries, I will call this a luxury item. Although I will say that if you're going to be in a camp for greater than five days, you should really seriously consider this item. And that is a shower. Yeah. Yeah. And hygiene keeps you in the game. It's not just like, oh, I need a shower. 
It's like, no, you need to keep your body clean so that it continues to function because you've been wearing the same stuff and you're going to start growing bacterial <laughs> cultures yes, on yeah. your skin. So don't be nasty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But showers, like, it doesn't necessarily have to weigh a thousand pounds and, and require propane or whatever. Like, you have a pretty elegant solution to that. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a funny, it's a, ha it's one of those happy accident things. We, um, I was actually on an overland trip in, on the Baja Peninsula years ago, um, with some other couples and one of the couples were, let's say more city folk. And, uh, and after a few days I could see, I mean, we loaned a lot of people on the trip, including these guys, um, some of our kind of backcountry gear. And I could see that they were just not loving, like, climbing in and out of this little back backpacking tent and desperate to take a shower and whatever. So I had this thought, like, what if we made, you know, this like Uber two person tent, you know, that, that was standing height. I mean, in the case of Overland, you know, you care what things weigh, but not like we do, right. you know, being human powered in the backcountry. And uh, so what if it were standing height and it even maybe had a shower room, you know, and then, and that shower room had like a retractable floor and it had maybe like a place to hang a shower inside. So we started designing this thing and uh, I think we called it the safari tent at the time. And it was fixing to weigh, you know, 15 pounds and cost a thousand bucks and, and, you know, was faded from the beginning to be a dead end. But, but it got us thinking about a shower. Like we're looking at the showers that are on the market and, realizing that pretty much all the camp showers, um, you know, the stuff that you'd actually kind of carry out into the woods anyway, um, were these hanging shut, you know, like heat up in the sun, hanging up in a tree somewhere. And, and so we got some of these things and we're playing with them and you just, you, you didn't get a lot of water pressure out of it and, and water's heavy. I mean, it's eight pounds a gallon, right? So it becomes, and then designing a tent strong enough to, to hold one of these things up high enough that you'd get any water. It just wasn't working. Right. So we had this thought one day, is there any reason why, like we were already making tents with inflated ribs in them, air beams, we called them instead of traditional tent poles. So we already knew a little bit about making things airtight and making pumps and stuff. So I thought, is there any reason why you can't take an empty two liter Coke bottle, fill it with soda bottle, fill it with water and, repressurize it with like a little hand pump or a foot pump and squirt water out of it and clean yourself with that. And that's literally, we made this kludgy little prototype in the shop with exactly that. And, uh, and with a foot pump from one of our tents at the time, we could make enough water pressure. It was just like, wow, this is cool. And we ended up taking that to market and the tent never went anywhere. Mm -hmm. So it, it really was a happy accident out of the tent exploration. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it packs up small. It's, it's simple. It's resilient. The, the pump has, we were talking about this a little bit uh, in our conversation before the podcast, but it has a return spring in it, but it's not metal. It's actually stadium cushion foam. So there's no, there's no parts to it to break or anything. And, uh, and it creates good water pressure. Yeah. It's a, it's a big deal. Um, I lived in a wall tent for, you know, several months, one year. Um, going from winter and into spring and summer. And I eventually got a shower, and it was such a game changer. <laughs> it was such a game changer to be able to 
get in my rack and be clean at night. Um, totally. Yeah. And that was not a normal situation, right? Um, I wasn't hunting. I was, I was working. But, um, yeah, being able to do that is huge. And being able to do that with a really light, small system um, that's effective and actually has enough pressure to not just clean yourself, but to, to clean other things. Totally. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yep. So. Yeah, we also make a, we make a shelter. I mean, there's a lot of potty shelters or shower shelters out there, but we do make a, um, a shelter that goes with it that has a little towel rack and toilet paper yeah. dispenser and things like that. And, uh, to get draining floor. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, it's, it's, you know, and I find some of us are more sensitive than others. If I want to get my whole family, let's say, you know, to go out and enjoy camping night after night, um, that can be a pretty key piece. How do people find out more about Nemo? Uh, you can go to our website. It's uh, nemoequipment.com. Um, call have, Randy. Yeah, you call me. Uh, my number's on my email. Uh, we have a YouTube channel as well. It has all of our products. It has some how-tos and some brand videos. Um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, um, and our blog. We have a great blog that has a lot of adventure stories and tips and tricks, um, lots of different information. Cool. And your uh, First Light collaboration is on First Light's website too, correct? As well, yeah. A lot of that stuff we, on there. Yeah. We have a full page on our site, and they, they do as well. That's the only two places that you can get the field collection. Cool. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Pleasure. Good luck on yeah. your uh, hunt next uh, this weekend yeah. in Maine. We're, we're going to culturize James differently. Uh, he, he, he cultured us to the west. Now it's time to yeah, teach him about the uh, east. Hang out not in yet. the not in the thick, you, dense woods. You've, yeah. eat, you've yeah. eaten lobster. Leave, leave the binos yeah. in the truck. You've drove through Boston. You've <laughs> eaten lobster. The only Change missing link to a four power. Yeah, the only, only missing link is wearing a flannel jacket and hiking through the woods now. Yeah. And, and then you're a New Englander. And you're gonna hang out with Hal. Yeah, that should be interesting. Yeah, I'm excited. That's I very read cool. His book. Awesome. Yeah, he's so. a legend. Yeah. Well, good luck to you guys in your upcoming hunts. I know both of you have been in the woods a little bit and have more to come. So. Absolutely. Get it done. You as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week. <laughs>